Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Chantal, and I will be uh, hosting tonight with the incomparable Roger Hudson. Oh, thank you very much, Chantal. And our guests tonight are Martin Ross, a PhD candidate in music theory here at Western, and Ashton Forrest, um, a master's, is that correct? A master's student in um, a philosophy. So welcome, Martin and Ashton. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. And both Martin and Ashton are both are either current or former accessibility commissioners here at SOGS. Is that correct? I'm, that's correct. I'm the uh, current accessibility commissioner. Fantastic. Yep. And what, uh, what do you do as accessibility commissioner, Martin? So the accessibility commissioner is one of four commissioners in SOGS, our Society of Graduate Students, the other three being Pride, Women's, and Aboriginal Indigenous Commissioner. Um, the Accessibility Commissioner um, uh, strives to advocate for the betterment of accessibility and disability, uh, graduate students with disabilities at Western. And I understand, um, I know from myself, I'm a graduate student with a disability here at Western, and I understand both uh, Martin and Ashton, you are as well graduate students with disabilities? That is correct. That's right. Ashton, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience being um, a student here with a disability? Um, should I just start from the beginning as having, like, what my I always find is. that to be the best place <laughs> to start. Um, uh, about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with um, scleroderma, also known as systemic sclerosis. It's an autoimmune disease that affects the whole body. It literally means hard skin, and for me, it creates hard skin. There's arthritis involved, muscle weakness, muscle deterioration. GI problems, you name it. There's something that goes on everywhere. And you were, you were diagnosed 10 years ago. Is this something that you like had and then were diagnosed, or is it something that like emerges? At a it period? came out of the blue. This was, it hit me when I was in my last, well, what was supposed to be my last year of my undergrad career when I was here at Western doing my philosophy and political science in undergrad. Okay. So I guess in, in the... Uh, spectrum of disabilities. There's visible and invisible disabilities, and among those, you can classify yours under the umbrella term invisible. If that, if I assume, if I understand that correctly, it's difficult to be. Some days I'm just I'm invisible. Sometimes I'm very visible. Mm-hmm. Um, when I have my scooter, it's quite obvious that people recognize me as a person with a disability. Um, when I don't have my mobility scooter, it's harder for people to tell. Um, in the early stages of the disease, I had extreme hyperpigmentation, so there was lots of blotches all over my skin, and people mm. would ask me if I was in a fire accident or a chemical spill. Yeah. So for them, it was very obvious, or if they saw me walking a certain way due to the joint problems or just being exhausted, exhausted or breathing issues, they would say, are you okay? Do you need help? When really that's just how the disease works and presents itself. So do you find in your experience, and this is uh, also for you as well, Martin, that uh, a lot of, that you, people uh, make a lot of assumptions about uh, yourself or how, um, how you're interacting with other people um, in relation to your disability? For me, uh, not a lot of people make assumptions because not a lot of people know about my disability. Um, I seldom tell a lot of um, people about it. Um, it's just uh, one of the biggest things about um, having a disability that I've had um, 
throughout my life is just um, the sort of identity of having one, um, especially um, for mine, it is an invisible disability. And with that, it's um, my choice of not telling people about that kind of stems from how I'd be viewed otherwise as that like equating my disability to um, some sort of impe impediment, um, inherent impediment or a, a disadvantage, mm -hmm. which I um, try to steer clear of. Um, and of course, everybody means well, but that is kind of one of the biggest things I see uh, uh, with people with an invisible uh, disability is stigma. And mm -hmm. it was kind of one of my uh, uh, choices to come on to GradCast is that I wanted to come on here as accessibility commissioner as I feel like this is one of the best ways to reach out to my constituents as people who see, um, who, um, excuse me, people who, uh, identify as having a disability, but don't publicize it and make it part of their identity. I'd just like to thank both you, Martin and Ashton, for sharing uh, the stories. Uh, very courageous of you. And uh, both of you touched on uh, different pieces of identity and stigma uh, being faced with that throughout uh, the development and throughout the course of the disability. Would you like to speak anything at all about how that might have affected you? Uh, yes, actually. It's having a disability, when I got diagnosed and having a disability and seeing the changes in what I was able to do and what I'm able to do now, even though that changes day to day based on how my disease likes to treat me, um, it's, it makes you rethink of who you are because before getting diagnosed with scleroderma, I thought of myself as a champion, fierce, um, I could run, I could, I beat up my brother, even though he's much taller than me at time. <laughs> um, but when I got diagnosed, I became weak, extremely dependent on other people when I was known to be too independent. Um, I wasn't able to do my personal care, you know, brush my teeth or um, get dressed in the morning, take a shower, cook for myself. Um, I wasn't able to help out with household chores. Um, the dreams that my family had for me and the dreams that I had for myself seemed so far in the distance since the daily needs that I need to fulfill were basically staying comfortable, taking my medication, and hopefully getting dressed that day. Mm. So what I've learned through the process of having this illness is how to rediscover who I am and what are the true qualities of who I am. And it turned out that I'm still strong. I'm still fierce. I still scare a few people off because I don't back down that easily. Um, what, a couple of things that I didn't mention before is that um, I sit on the city's accessibility advisory committee. I'm also on the standards development committee for the post-secondary um, education standard that the accessibility directorate is de developing. So, wow. And then I'm also um, a member of Cheshire's Cult Cultural Competency Committee. So using these avenues to advocate, I'm able to reassert myself as someone who's confident who's smart, whereas the stigma is if you have a disability, you know, even it's not true, but people still talk to you like a child. There have been instances on campus where I'm on, I've gone to an establishment, food establishment, go there so often, they recognize me, they know me, I feel like I'm a VIP there <laughs> um, without my scooter. One day I showed up with my scooter and it all changed. They said, oh, that's so sad, we're so sorry, honey, and they're like talking to you in that baby tone, and I'm just like, I'm still the same girl you gave a six inch sub to yesterday. So you see that stigma a lot and it's trying to make sure that um, the way people perceive you don't define who you are.
It's so incredibly strong. And you mentioned a lot about how the disadvantages that come, or the dis the the instant or the different symptoms that come with the disability don't necessarily lead to disadvantages because of the adaptive skills that you've been able to build and and work through in order to uh, allow yourself to thrive and realize that you are independent. Yeah, well, I learned independent through a different means. Like we're all dependent in a way, but interdependent learning to be interdependent and independent by relying on the resources that you need and knowing how to use them and knowing where to set boundaries is key. And yeah, that helps me get through life. It takes, yeah. Now you and Martin have both been um, pretty instrumental in a number of, um, uh, in creating a number of resources here at Western uh, through your position, uh, Martin, as uh, SOG's Accessibility Commissioner and through your advocacy work, sorry, advocacy work that seems to permeate a lot of very diverse things, which is amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the uh, your Access Lab um, initiative? Sure. Um, so the Access Lab was uh, in development ever since the better part of the beginning of last year. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, well, there was an access lab prior to then. Right. It was, I think, given to um, students from the USC. But it was inaccessible. Is That's that correct? Yes. It was, <laughs> yeah, so, it was, so it was yeah, inaccessible. It was, so. it was very non-ideal. <laughs> so Ashton and I um, oversaw, with the help of um, Stefan Pachioko of um, the USC Accessibility Commissioner and Leslie Oliver, the Equity and Human Rights Director, um, just going through the process of the renovations that they made, and it's a fantastic space now. Of yeah, there's a lot of things that weren't there before. So the big thing is the accessible door. So now there's a button you can open that will push open the door. We have adjustable desks, so they for people that need to stand, sit, or whatever makes them comfortable. The lighting is dimmable, so for people that might have brain injuries or issues with light. Um, it's a much more comfortable space that way. It also has, the technology is has updated um, accessible adaptive technologies on it. So whether you need to speak into the computer or um, have things blown up for you or read back, it can be done. Fantastic. There is also a working printer in that room, which is great because prior when I tried to use it before, I couldn't print from that room and there was no way to print to the printers that were outside of the Weldon Library. Uh. So it was kind of complicated. I feel like I'm missing out on more stuff. Oh, well, oh one yeah. thing for, oh, please. Sorry, I, I, it was, they have that TV screen. I'm not too mm, sure if it's set up now, but the monitor is supposed to be there so that people can get a view of what outside is like. It's supposed to be streaming yeah. from at a place that's very nice so people have an idea of what it's, you know, what outside looks like since there's no windows for natural light. And for our listeners who um, could benefit from using this space, can you tell us where it is on campus? It's in the D.B. Weldon Library. Um, you just enter and it's veering off to the left by Argo Tea Cafe. And it's just a door. It has a, um, a sign on the door as well as um, big letters above it as well. That shows right. um, Linda and Walter Zimmer Zimmerman Access Lab. Fantastic. And, and clearly these initiatives, the Access Lab and others like it, are, are very important to the university. Uh, but just how important, I'm wondering, are they? We, we hear about studies all the time about how the incidence or the prevalence of uh, disabilities within students, uh, university students, graduate students is on the rise. Do we understand exactly how prevalent it is? I, I guess it's hard to say how many people with disabilities 
are on campus, um, what we do find is that there are more people coming forward once they understand what the definitions of what is included in a disability. It's not just the physical aspects. We're including learning disabilities. We're talking about um, can I jump jump into that? Because I myself, my disability is a learning disability, and I think I believe it was either Roger or Ashton talked about uh, making adaptive skills. And one of the biggest things about a learning disability is just basically understanding your disability and really honing in on your on what your disability is and what it entails. What kind of impediments have it on, on the way? I mean, uh, with the physical disability, something that's visible. It's a little. It's um, how you feel it um, uh, physically is much different than mentally. There are differences, obviously. So with um, with mine, it's just a, a matter of focusing and, and what in, taking interest in something. And um, I had advice, because Ashton, you bring up a good point, is we're not entirely sure of how many people. And I think Roger and I talked to uh, talked about this earlier. Is do you have a good number of how many people uh, percentage-wise, and I thought to myself, I'm not entirely sure if I can answer it. For one, I don't know the exact number, to be honest. For but sure. number two is, um, to be fair, is that I feel, because I've been in the position that I've had a disability and not gotten forward and enrolled into a service like SSD, and SSD being our campus service, our services for students with disabilities. And I would encourage uh, any graduate student or any student for that matter, if they want to know more, there's not um, the best place to do it is with the SSD office and enroll. Just enroll with it. They might have services to uh, um, for to help you um, understand your uh, disability better. They can offer better accommodations. Um, it's just uh, it's better to have it, not need it, rather than need it and not have it. Very, very well said, and I think it's incredibly powerful coming from a position of a, of a graduate student uh, like, like one of yourself. Thank you very much. I think that um, if I may share one of my experiences with um, SSD, is that um, I think when I first enrolled with SSD, I was, to be totally honest, somewhat disappointed with the services that were available specifically as a graduate student. I think that I felt a lot like many of the services at SSD, the majority of the services at SSD were very much undergrad focused. Um, And I didn't really know uh, where my place was um, in uh, SSD. Um, But one of the things that I think I've come out um, thinking as I got to know more and more of the of the people who work at SSD, the the actual people that are there, is that um, there is a desire, I think, to serve and support graduate students. Um, and uh, the more of us that are open about our disabilities and ask for accessible resources and point out um, barriers to our learning um, and bring that all to the attention of SSD, the more they can be effective in their job. I agree with you, Chantal, and actually that's a very good point. Is um, I, I myself also was a little underwhelmed with how I enrolled in SSD. Um, I'm, I'm enrolled. Do I use the services? No. Um, none of the services exactly apply. And what that said to me when I initially did that um, it kind of gave me the impression that 
SSD uh, for a, a graduate student with disability, perhaps, and I might just be assuming a little too much here, and but uh, that SSD might figure that the graduate student has a better handle on their disability, given that they perhaps have had it for such a long time. And that might not be fair, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, jump, jump the gun on anything or, or jump to a conclusion. But um, if as as someone who's been a Westerner from undergrad to a graduate, um, since my disease hit me, what was supposed to be my last year of my undergraduate career, I found that there were a lot more services available for students with disabilities in undergrad, like exam accommodations, um, getting things in accessible formats, um, even. Um, Healthcare services seem to be easily accessible, and um, how you interacted with your professor was different as well. At the graduate level, the relationship between a professor and a student is a little bit more informal, where you can speak to your professor about your accommodations, which becomes a really hard point because if you're going to go to your professor about an accommodation, then stigmas that they may not be willing to admit that they have might start. A, they might be projecting onto you, and I think with SSD, um, they haven't really learned how to change that um, student-professor relationship at the graduate level to say that when we're doing accommodations, whatever SSD recommends based on what we know about the student and what the classwork is like, that should just be it. Not like, well, you, I'll give an example. Um, I remember one class that I had in an old building. It was so cold, so I asked about, is there any way they could turn up the heat in the room or bring in um, an electric heater because I have Raynaud's, which comes with scleroderma. Uh, Raynaud's is um, blood circulation issue. So when you get cold, um, the blood goes to your core, and then you end up with blue or white hands, mm -hmm. and it becomes right. very painful. Like I get contractures, and I can't write. And it's painful, and it feels like, yeah, I have the gloves on right now. Um, and, you know, the idea is like, oh, well, just wear more clothes or put on a jacket. So here I am with my winter jacket in class with my electric muff to keep my hands warm, but now I can't take notes. So, and if I decide to strip my layers off to take notes, then that becomes a problem. And then the quick thing is like, well, just get a note taker. But in a philosophy class, I'm not taking notes on content. I'm taking notes on ideas and theories and things that I would like to engage with more after. So it's hard to get a note taker to do that process for me. So, um, yes. and you said you said uh, a moment ago that like the quick thing is to get, but realistically, okay. you've already gone through a number of steps to try to, you know keep up with the status quo and no accommodation is really being made at this point. Exactly, right? and yeah. that's the huge part. So at the graduate level, well, even at the undergraduate level, I always thought there was a delay in how quickly accommodations were given out, but I found it more so at the graduate level because there is always this delay. Like, for instance, um, some professors don't get out their course syllabuses ahead of time. Well, if they wait till the first day of class or... In, I would prefer a month before class, so that way I know where the class is so I can figure out my route. I can um, ask if I need an accommodation so my scooter can actually fit inside the classroom so it's not left out for people to play with because that's happened in the past. Um, it allows me to go and ask about how do I get this book in an accessible format and then learn how to use the software. But when that's not done, because I've, I've approached professors about can this be done sooner, mm. It, it throws off a lot, even when it comes to picking out a course. Like, we all like to go test out different classes, but 
I can't physically do that anymore. I need to know in advance what the class is going to be like so I can conserve my energy and just go to those classes that I'm interested in. You bring up such an interesting thing there that um, that from for me, like that, I I don't have physical barriers um, here, and so for me, when I think of a course syllabus, um, the practicalities of it are not something that I think about. Like, it, so getting it the day of really doesn't. But that, but those are the kinds of things that um, that that we can't really take for granted. That that uh, that need to be communicated a, a little bit more effectively. That's such an interesting interesting thing to. And I, I, I would like to add, actually, and you do bring up a good point, is that, and I think it's just with the more generalized uh, uh, perspective of the undergraduate, of the accommodations that, and the, the services that are provided are, are just a little bit broader for the undergraduate students. Rather, um, just at the graduate level, everybody's just so much more individualized of just being within their own faculty that when you want to get a service, and I've talked to uh, the head of SSE, Wendy Dickinson, about this, is just when you want to get accommodation services, it's a better idea and better strategy to just go to your professor and talk about it rather than, of course, go to SSD, see what they have. I think it's just uh, kind of working backwards is the better solution. <laughs> is just approach rather than approach SSD and then make um, con consult your professor about it, is consult your professor and then see what SSK SSD can do and accommodate. Because they have made accommodations, especially um, Wendy and I discussed like perhaps a, di a dissertation proposal or a defense where um, either extra time was granted or, th or the, uh, the venue and space was changed. Um, these services in um, SSD can make these changes and accommodations for the respective the student that uh, with their respective disability. Yeah, and then that brings up the other issue about disclosure because once again, right. disability is such I, a personal thing. And I, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't tell a lot of people about mine and uh, when I do, I, mostly it's just my professors. Just uh, actually, just a few of them know. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh well, because I'm so I guess politically active. Um, I talk about my disability everywhere, even the most disturbing and gross parts of it. Um, so because through my advocacy uh, with the Scleroderma Society, so I've been on the news um, calling out our healthcare minister. Well, at the time it was Deb Matthews. You know. Um, being in interviews and whatnot. So it's hard. And I think we should leave that up to the student to, to decide where they Absolutely. go. And it seems like a lot of the services available, especially for graduate students, are so variable and subjective and on a case-by-case -case basis, in a sense, whereas with undergraduates, because there's a consistent course load and things like this, it seems like there's more structure to it. Is there any potential for uh, policies or infrastructure to be developed around the graduate students? Definitely. Um, like I said, I was, I'm going to be sitting on the Standards Development Committee for the post-secondary education, post education standards yeah. for the AODA. Um, I think there are some universities are waiting for the standard to come out. Others are trying to see how they can um, meet the graduate students' needs because it's a completely different area when we talk about research and type of work that we're doing That's right. as opposed to undergrad. So there's still a bit of a learning curve and waiting to see what... Um, policies are mandatory versus optional. Yeah. And for me, uh, um, I'm trying to um, uh, get a third party 
uh, academic strategy coach on retainer at the SSD for the SSD program, specifically for graduate students. Um, uh, this woman, Janine Wright Gusticia, has a, a specialty in um, doing academic strategy with students with disabilities. Um, she, and I've used her services, they're fantastic. I uh, took a whole month before my comps and met with her once a week just to prepare. And one of the biggest things is, is uh, students with a learning disability is sometimes just learning how to actually um, study correctly or um, learn things in a correct and uh, efficient strategic way and I was so surprised of how wrong or inefficient some of my uh, uh, studying habits were until uh, Janine pointed them out and kind of plotted me on a course and ultimately when I did my comps um, I was on a very rigorous structured routine and ultimately it, it, it went by it was a lot of work but I, I, I got through it just in the same amount of time as any other student um, I, I did have the option of extra time I didn't take it I didn't need it um, but uh, it was um, some good information but um, you definitely like Janine's services really made a big difference absolutely today. so what I'm trying to do I've talked to um, Leslie Oliver at uh, Equity and Human Rights and Wendy and my hopes are to talk to uh, SGPS Lorraine Davies at SGPS. So, Lorraine, if you're listening, I'm going to try and <laughs> email you. Um, I'm trying, trying to get around to that. So, uh, but uh, to see if um, in some way we can utilize and put Janine on some sort of retainer pos position for SSD, specifically for graduate students with learning disabilities, just so they, um, yeah. Well, we're just about running out of time, but I'd like to really thank Martin Ross and Ashton Forrest for their time and uh, for sharing all their wealth of knowledge with us here tonight. Um, you can check us out uh, on a, every Tuesday here at GradCast on uh, the CHRW, and you can also check us out at gradcast.ca. Our email, if you'd like to get involved with GradCast, is gradcastradio at gmail.com. And uh, once again, this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. Uh, my name is Roger. I've been hosted uh, as well by Chantel. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great one. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.